Now, I get it. I don't like the left. I don't like what they do. I don't like their cultural agenda. I don't like the way they interpret American history. I don't like what they've done to the Constitution, to the, the, their contempt for the rule of law, their fostering of identity politics, their contempt for the American founder. I don't like any of these things. But I don't think that the means that they're proposing to deal with these things will work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but secondly, I think they're inconsistent with the things that conservatives believe to be important. What has happened to America? How did we get here? America feels lost. How can we find our common ground again? For a century, the Pittsburgh area was the steel capital of the world, until the 1980s, when foreign competitors came up with revolutionary innovations and America's steel industry went bust. Those towns that have not made the transition are precisely the very same towns that looked to the government to solve their problem. Leaving once thriving communities like Braddock clinging to life and worrying now the next closure could mean death. Those protests against Wall Street continue to grow across the country today. Here in New York, tonight I want to speak with you about our nation's unprecedented response to the coronavirus outbreak that started in China. It's the largest American jobs investment since World War II and put us in a position to win the global competition with China. And if you think about 1619 as an origin, uh, that explains really some of our most vexing problems. Emotions running very high and hot at another school board meeting in Loudoun County last night. Parents calling out the school's social justice agenda. Samuel Gregg is Distinguished Fellow in Political Economy and Senior Research Faculty at the American Institute for Economic Research and author of The Next American Economy, Nation, State and Markets in an Uncertain World. He argues that the perennial debates about America's identity go all the way back to the founding and that the key to repairing what seems broken lies in the ideas of the Constitution. He believes that there's still hope for the people of the United States and the American experiment. But first, we need to recognize that... That America is now at a type of economic crossroads. We can either go down the path of what I call state capitalism, or we can go back to what I think is the more optimal model, which is America is a commercial republic with a dynamic market economy. And state capitalism, which is the opposite, is basically a system in which it's not like communism or socialism where everything is planned from the top down. It's much more a society in which you have markets, you have private property, but there's extensive and ongoing and spreading intervention by the government into virtually every economic sector. So that's why we call it state capitalism rather than market capitalism, because the market in state capitalism gradually gets displaced in terms of where people see their interests lying, how they get what they want, how they economically prosper. And state capitalism involves people prospering by getting close to the state in the form of whether it's getting subsidies or tariffs or protectionism and other forms of preferential treatment, or they decide to go and become legislators, which is the other part of the, the state capitalism bargain, right? Whereby, because you need legislators and regulators who can hand things out. Yes. Right. Yes. So that's, that is what I think America is more or less moved in the direction of 
for quite some time. And there are now people on the left and on the right in America mm-hmm. who are actually saying this is the path that we should be going down. We should be having protectionism. We should be having subsidies and industrial policy. Uh, We should be having things like what's called stakeholder capitalism, Mm -hmm. whereby shareholders become just one of many different constituencies that businesses are supposed to be pursuing the interests of. So that's what I mean by state capitalism. And America, if you look at it, has well and truly moved down that path for quite some time. Now, I'm not convinced that that's inevitable, that it's going to be just we're going to become just another sclerotic European social democracy, because I think Americans can have hope and have some optimism that that doesn't need to be the path that we follow. But we have to make a choice. We have to make a choice. We just can't keep drifting along, because if we keep drifting along, I guarantee we'll drift in the direction of state capitalism rather than the market alternative. So my book tries to show, first of all, the problems of state capitalism, but also provide the alternative path, both in terms of policies, whether it's entrepreneurship or competition or trade, but also in terms of what you might call the wider normative or moral narrative that we need to present the case for markets for. Because and we've talked about this somewhat before, free marketers have generally not been so good at that. The left are very good at that. They're very good at presenting a normative case for what you or I would regard as very bad economic policies. The right, or free marketers, I should say, tend to be much better at explaining why free markets work, why socialism doesn't work, why planned economies, industrial policy, protectionism. We're very good at explaining why those things don't work and why markets work economically. But with some notable exceptions, we're not so good, historically speaking, at making this wider case for why markets matter in a way that goes beyond the economy. So that's basically appealing to identity, appealing to morality, um, appealing to values, Mm -hmm. and all of the other things that the progressive left does very well, Mm -hmm. but that we also see with populists on the right. Yes. So it's very identity-based. So what is the argument uh, the the philosophical or moral argument for free markets, and this could be a long <laughs> a long answer because half of your book basically explains it. So maybe you well, can start somewhere. And well, I guess the best best place to start would be with the person who I think was exceptionally good at this, which was Adam, who's Adam Smith. Mm-hmm. So I always say to people, if you read his book, The Wealth of Nations, you also need to read his earlier book. The book he actually liked the most of all his own writings, which is his theory of moral sentiments, which is a, a book of moral psychology. It explains how Smith believes people function and think and act as moral beings. But he also presents that book in the context of what was emerging in Britain at the time, which is a commercial society, a society in which commerce plays an elevated role in social life that goes beyond just economics. And Smith and others are very convinced that with this commercial society, you're going to see civilizational growth. So it goes beyond economic growth. You'll see civilizational growth happening as a consequence of people becoming more involved and focused upon commerce and economic enterprises of a market-like nature. 
But what's also interesting is that Smith and others of the time, including many of the American founders, they did believe that this type of economic system wasn't just good economically, it was also good culturally and morally for people. But they also said that this economic system was vitally dependent upon certain sets of virtues being present in a given society. And here they invoked classical virtues associated with the world of Greece and Rome, they invoked certain religious virtues, and they also invoked what they called commercial virtues, the particular virtues that are necessary in the context of living in a commercial society. And they also pointed out that these types of societies, beyond the virtues, they also tended to promote things like rule of law, uh, limited government, the idea of constitutionalism. Now, all these things had been around before the emergence of commercial society, before the Scottish Enlightenment, before the American founding. But it's really at the end of the, the last quarter of the 18th century that you see this very strong normative case for what people like uh, George Washington would have described as a commercial republic, a republic in which you have republican forms of limited government, in which you have a dynamic commercial sector in which most people spend most of their time outside the family, but you also have these sets of, these particular sets of virtues. And these three things together make up what are found, America's founders, but many other people at the time called a commercial republic. And they were very convinced that this was a form of political regime that was better than say feudal arrangements, mm -hmm. or better than the type of highly militaristic set of arrangements that you found in say the, the late Roman Republic. Mm. So this is a, it's, it's a, it's an economic vision, but it's also a normative vision of how politics, of how society and how culture ought to function. And all of it's about uplifting the individual, the flourishing of the individual, but also this individual as a social being. Because we're not atomized individuals. Mm -hmm. We live through and with other people. And that's how we often realize some of the best qualities of ourselves. It's through relationship with other people. And th these ideas about a commercial society took this relational, associational side of life very, very seriously. So the end goal of a commercial republic is this flourishing in the sense of we've become who we're meant to be as individuals, but also in forms of community and association as well. And that's a, that's a very attractive, I think, normative vision that those of us who believe in markets should be saying a lot more about. Well, what's interesting about this is that a lot of the times collectivists, whether on the left or the right, they will talk about how... Um, it's a bad thing to be focused on the individual mm -hmm. and that it's selfish and all of these kinds of things, right? Um, but here what you're saying is that there was a focus on virtue and on morals that had to do with, I believe it was called, they were calling it at the time, the founding fathers, not the common good, um, but the wealth of the people. The general welfare. The general welfare, That's right. That's literally in the, um, the Constitution. Yes. Yeah, the so, preamble to the Constitution. So can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, because the... The founders didn't have a vision of the world of this sort of radically atomized individuals. That's a caricature mm -hmm. of markets, because when you think about markets, there are no radical individuals in markets because 
you have to be thinking about what your customers want. You have to be thinking about what consumers may need and may want in the future. If you try to act as a radical individual in the con context of a market, I can assure you that your business won't prosper very well because you have to think about your employees. You have to think about um, what is likely to be happening in society. You have to be thinking about the type of people that you want to come and work for you and the types of qualities that they have. Markets in many ways make people very other regarding. We can't help but think about other people in the conditions of, of a market. So I think that's a very important thing when we think about things like um, this notion of individualism. And it's certainly true that Americans developed a particular understanding of individualism. And it's not one of individuals as radically autonomous beings. It's one of individuals who are distinct, who are unique, and therefore special in their own right, just simply by being who they are, but also that they realize themselves through interactions with other people, associations with other people, whether they're economic in nature, or more social in nature, or more familial in nature. And that it's, so it's a vision that takes the idea of the individual very, very seriously and avoids thinking that the individual finds themselves by being submerged completely into the identity of a particular group. So it takes that side of things very seriously, but it also says we're associational by nature. And America has worked that out, I think, in a particularly good way. And that was noticed when people like Alexis de Tocqueville mm. came to the United States in the 1830s. And he immediately noticed that this was a society in which individualism was taken very seriously, but also associationalism was taken very seriously as well. And he contrasted this to his native France, where you had the individual and you had the state. And there wasn't much by way of what we would call intermediate associations or what you might call civil society. It was the individual and the state. And if you had a problem with your neighbor in a little town in the south of France, you didn't go and talk to your neighbor. You went and called the minister in Paris and asked him to fix the situation. And Tocqueville noticed that in America, people didn't run to the government to solve problems. Hmm. They tended to get together in local associations and local groups and that was how they addressed social problems. So it was a way in which individuality contributed to solving social problems in ways that were often much more effective than state action. So individualism is actually quite social. Sure. And this is, you know, one of those myths uh, that is often associated with capitalism. Mm -hmm. And capitalism, by capitalism, I don't know if people always know what they mean when they use the word capitalism. Do they mean state capitalism? Are they referring to markets? Are they referring to any system that's not socialism? Um, you know, so, but anyways, anything associated with capitalism and individualism is given that bad name mm -hmm. and kind of called selfish and antisocial, but it appears that that's not really the case. I think that's right, because... Even the word capitalism, so it emerges in the 19th century, it's pretty much a Marxist word. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. And so to that extent, it's thereby automatically associated with very negative overtones because Marx did not like what he saw, this emerging industrial capitalism that was appearing all over Europe and North America 
during the 19th century. He didn't like this system. He thought it was deeply alienating, exploitative, etc. But more, more importantly, he saw it as a sort of a period through which human beings would move towards and, and, and they would eventually get to the point whereby they would dispense with all this. Right. Mm. So that was his vision of the, that's communism was a society in which he said human beings could sit down and hunt and fish and readers and they didn't have to worry about all these material things anymore. So to that extent, capitalism has negative baggage, negative baggage. Now, there is a, there are technical ways of talking about capitalism. You can say it's an economy in which capital is sort of the driving force that makes economies productive by the efficient allocation and use uh, of capital. Um, but there's also different ways that you can put a different adjective in front of the word capitalism. So state capitalism, which we've already talked about, that's sort of a, a, a managed economy. You have markets and private property, but things are more or less managed. It's sort of a very Keynesian understanding of what the economy is most, most supposed to be like. And then you have market capitalism, which is, um, a, a capitalist system in which private property and markets are very much front and center, in which the government takes a very much a back, backward role. It doesn't get involved in the details. It does things like has a foreign policy, national security, protects property rights, upholds rule of law, but doesn't really get beyond those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you have the sorts of capitalism, if you could call it that, that we see in places like mainland China, right? Yes. So you have a, there a strange integration of communist ideology, authoritarian nationalism, and a type of market economy that's actually strictly limited and in which the state is very deeply involved at pretty much every level. So there's different ways we can use the word capitalism. There's different adjectives that we can put at the front of it. But when I, when I use the word, I always say, look, I'm really talking about a market economy mm -hmm. that exists uh, with a particular type of moral culture in which government plays a clear but nonetheless strictly limited constitutional role. So I definitely like to get into what that moral culture looks like mm -hmm. a little bit later on, but I want to first pivot back to China. Mm. Because this, of course, among many conservatives, uh, this is a big issue of contention. Sure. They wonder what to do with China, you know, and that's why there are arguments for tariffs, protectionism, and things like that. Um, so can you give me your thoughts on what is the best way to hmm. to approach um, China as a, as a competitor, let's sure. say? Sure. Well, the short answer to that is read Chapter 7 of my book. But, <laughs> I'm <laughs> but just going to flash this here for everybody. <laughs> but let's not, uh, let's not do that. I won't read the whole thing out. But what I would say is that so the rise of China has clearly presented some major challenges for the way we think about the world, the way that Americans think about the world, but the way that everyone really thinks about the world. But for Americans, it's particularly acute because when China entered the WTO back in 2000, there was an immense political debate in the United States as to whether America should go along with this. And the argument you heard on both sides of politics, so from, say, um, then-President Bill Clinton and then-presidential candidate George W. Bush, the argument was, if China comes into the WTO, this means that their economy will become more integrated into the global economy. And the argument was that when you have more economic liberty, 
the effects of that liberty will seep over into other parts of society. It's a sort of play on the argument that was presented by people like Francis Fukuyama in the mm. 1990s with his book, The End of History and the Last Man, which he sort of argues, I'm probably, I'm paraphrasing here, but he more or less argues that we're all going to end up with liberal democracies and market economies. The question really is how quickly we end up getting there because that's really the only alternative. Mm. Now, when we think about all that and we consider the situation today, we have a lot of reason to doubt some of those arguments, right? Because China has come into the WTO, but has it become more like uh, a liberal democracy? Absolutely not. Yeah. It's gone, especially since 2008, and even more so after Xi became um, Communist Party secretary in 2012 and then became president of the country, etc. China has not become more politically free. Uh, there's massive forms of political, social, economic, religious repression that go on inside China. We've seen the way that they treat Hong Kong, what they've done to Hong Kong. So the argument that economic liberty, when you start to open it up, inevitably sort of changes the society. Well, clearly that's not true. So that's one thing. Another thing, of course, is that... Um, the American economy and the Chinese economy became somewhat integrated over this period of time. And uh, there were arguments that, well, this is resulting in massive job losses in parts of the United States, particularly in manufacturing, etc. And one of the things I do in my book is say that that's actually not true. You've debunked it yeah, pretty well. well. I, but yeah. I'm not the only one. There are yes. other people who have, have done this as yes. well. But basically to say that most of the decline in manufacturing jobs had started a long time before uh, China started its economic emergence, and that anywhere between 80 to 90% of the job losses in manufacturing because of technology. Yes. Right? Barack Obama even recognized this. At the, towards the end of his presidency, he said, yeah, it's pretty much a technological transformation. Right. And, and that's, people went into different fields. Sure, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So if you go into a factory today, you don't see um, lots of... Uh, 1950s American men walking around wearing jeans and overalls. You right. see, you walk in and you see it's high tech. Right. And you see a lot of people walking around, men and women, wearing lab coats. Yeah. And they're highly trained technicians. And a lot of the work is done by computers now. And by the way, that's all good because what that means is that there are lots of Americans who are now going into the service sector of the economy where you're not doing as much physically strenuous work where the work is often much more challenging in a good way, where there's often much more opportunity and much more plurality of choice about the type of work that you do. So, and the other thing, of course, is that America has become, we're still really good at manufacturing. It's just that we've taken advantage of our comparative advantage, which is high-tech manufacturing. And we're the world's leaders in this. And by the way, at this moment in time, there's something like 800,000 vacancies in the manufacturing industry. So the notion that mm. there's this sort of massive problem in this area, I think, is just factually very difficult to sustain. But that said, it's very clear that there are a lot of people who went through this transition as we move towards a more service economy where manufacturing became a smaller part of the American economy in terms of percentage of GDP. There's no question that different towns, different regions of the, of the United States had to go through a transition. And that wasn't easy. 
Yeah. I mean, we can say, well, you, you just transition, but yeah. it's not easy. It's, it's not people's e- lives, it right? Of and it's course. not easy for a 55-year-old coal miner just to get up and move to Silicon Valley and start a dot-com business. It's just not that simple. But the good news is that most towns in America did make the transition. And I point this out in the book that some very good studies of this coming from a variety of perspectives showing that most manufacturing towns have recovered, have made the transition. It was difficult, it was hard, but they've made it. And that those towns that have not made the transition are precisely the very same towns that looked to the government to solve their problems, to try and fix the situation from the outside. And guess what? It doesn't matter how much in terms of resources or subsidies or tax benefits that you put into a place like Youngstown, Ohio, which is the classic example everyone uses, it hasn't turned that city or other cities that chose that state-orientated path to transition compared to those that said, we're going to make a transition, we know it's hard, but we're not going to ask the government to help us to basically do this. So what happened from the time that Tocqueville visited and said the Americans are Mm -hmm. not looking to the government to solve their problems to where we are today, where that tends to be <laughs> one of the first thing that happens among, among certain people. Sure. Well, I mean, that's again, uh, I talk about that in the book <laughs> as well. But what I will say is this. So when Tocqueville came to America, he noticed Americans were incredibly competitive. They were, uh, he said, it's a nation of entrepreneurs. They would get up and do something, create a business, And while they're creating a business, they'd move on to another business very quickly and they'd leave this one sort of unfinished. But they were constantly mobile, they were constantly changing, they were creative, they were willing to take risks. And there was no stigma attached to economic failure. Hmm. A business would fail, well, you just get up and start another one. And Americans didn't care. They didn't think that that was somehow a, a grand moral failure on your part. So what happens? Well... I think we see uh, the progressive movement emerging towards the end of the 19th century, most of whom had been people like Woodrow Wilson and others who were associated with this movement. Many of them had been educated in German universities where they saw the state as the primary driver of economic life and political life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we see the emergence as a consequence of that of the administrative state in the really starting in the, the early 1900s with progressive politicians on both the Democratic and the Republican side. We see the New Deal, which involves a major transformation of the role of the federal government in American life, and particularly in the economy, to the detriment, I would argue, in the long term for the United States. When a whole country goes to war, like in World War II, that produces some major changes in the economy. And it's not always evident that when you when peacetime ensues, that you go back to the way things were. Yes. Usually, you know, war does to does tend to enable the expansion of the state and getting the state back in the box after the conclusion of a war is often very hard. We have the Great Society programs of the 1960s, Lyndon Johnson, which oh. involves you know, incredible expansions of the welfare state, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the government being involved in community transformation, as they would call it, etc. Um, and all those things, I think, have made government just much more omnipresent in American economic life. And restraining government, let alone reducing the size of government, 
is an extremely difficult exercise. It's always easy to expand. Yes. Bringing it back is very hard. And this is why I think, for example, when Obamacare was um, fiercely debated uh, during the first um, administration of uh, Barack Obama, there was a realization that if Obamacare was successfully legislated into place, that getting rid of it would be near nigh impossible. And so far, that's turned out to be the case. Um, in fact, the last American president who actually reduced the size of government in the United States in real terms, not pretend terms, but real terms, was Calvin Coolidge. So that's we're going back to the 1920s. And that's what I was thinking. Um, it was after the First World War, right? Mm -hmm. It was, I think, the only time that they actually did reduce the government after mm -hmm. the war spending. It wasn't that much of a, of a bump in the long-term history of, of government spending, right? That's right, because partly because the war was relatively short for the United States. It was mm. only, for America, it was basically a two-year thing. And when, when the war was over, um, the United States transitioned very quickly back towards much more market-orientated arrangements. Military spending was massively reduced. Mm. Government intervention was reduced, etc. And then you had people like Coolidge who actively retracted the size of government. And that had, but that's the last time that happened. So that's almost 100 years ago now. Uh, and so that, that tells you just how much we have moved away from this vision of a commercial republic that America's founders thought the country should be like. So what is the, the moral case for going back towards something like that? Well, there's many things. One is that dependency in the sense of undue dependency upon the state by individuals is in the long term, I would argue, dehumanizing. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that if you look now in certain parts of America, there are three generations of people who have known nothing but I get my income from the government. And it's not good to be dependent upon the state. Now, we're all dependent. All of us as human beings are dependent upon other people. We're dependent upon our spouses. Children are dependent upon their parents. Um, when we just even with everyday people we, we meet, we're dependent upon them not to behave in a violent or irrational way towards us. So dependency is part of the human condition. But when you become unduly dependent upon the government, that can't help but sort of dull you as a person, to make you less ambitious, to mm. make you less curious, less entrepreneurial, less creative. And I'm not making this up. It was, um, I think it was the, the Democratic... Future Democratic Senator Daniel, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who pointed out in the late 1960s that the, new, the Great Society programs of Lyndon Johnson had done enormous damage to African-American communities and blue-collar white communities in the United States. And, and he was pilloried for saying these things out loud because it mm -hmm. wasn't the party line, mm -hmm. right? But I think it's just simply true. And we know that when we, when we retract the state, so, for example, the welfare reforms in the 1990s that happened in the United States, there are all sorts of people claiming at the time there's going to be thousands of people left out on the streets, there'll be um, mass poverty, 
No, it didn't happen. People adjusted. And when people realize that, okay, I can't go to the government now, I need to get a job, that changes the way you think about the world and the way you think about your responsibilities to yourself and to other people yes. as well. Yes. So um, the policies that, were, that have been associated with the expansion of government have been, in many respects, deeply dehumanizing. And they haven't even solved poverty. Right? right. I mean, despite these billions and trillions of dollars that have been spent have on poverty programs. have more problems. The opioid crisis is sure. one, for sure, example. Sure, sure, sure. Right. And in fact, there's some good work that's been done by people like um, uh, Nicholas Epstadt at the American uh, Enterprise Institute, showing how things like more expansive welfare states have done a lot of damage to young men in the United States because they can afford, if they get enough benefits from a variety of different programs, then they don't really have to work. They can stay home and use opioids or smoke marijuana and play video escape. games. They can escape from reality. Yes. <laughs> and yes. that's a huge problem. When people are trying to escape from reality to enter in this sort of um, artificial world where I don't have to think about anything, I, just, I can just live in this pretend world, mm -hmm. that is not really uplifting. That is not something that's worthy of us as human beings. No. And I think men especially, they need to do particular things, you know, mm. that are different than what women need to do. Um, in a lot of cases, they need to work. They need, they derive a lot of meaning mm -hmm. in their lives in doing things, whether that's creating things, building something, being an entrepreneur, being a, a great employee who is climbing up the ladder. Um, so what this is doing, in a sense, is contributing to this kind of flailing, you know, masculinity. Um, and it's it's odd because we hear a lot about toxic masculinity. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. And we, also hear, we <laughs> also hear people like um, economic nationalists. Or, and, and national conservatives saying, we have a crisis of masculinity, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. And that's why we need to subsidize factories and things right. like that so we can provide this type of work for people. And I, I keep thinking, look, I don't doubt that there are, there are significant social problems with particular demographics in the United States right now. I don't doubt that. Mm -hmm. And I do think, like you, that work is really important for human beings. It's sort of, uh, we're the only creatures that work. Animals don't work, plants don't work, minerals don't work. We are the only creature that works. Mm -hmm. and we transform the world in, in ways that other beings simply can't. So when you're disincentivized to work, which is what has happened with many of these welfare programs, and which were made worse by the government response to the pandemic, which literally involved the federal government and state government agencies literally giving lots of money to people to do nothing mm -hmm. because they weren't allowed mm -hmm. to do things, right? That simply exacerbated an already existing problem in America. And what's, But what's even worse is that there's now evidence that some of this problem has seeped over to women. Has seeped so? over to younger younger women as well. So it's not just white men now. There's a significant number of young women who are falling into the same very bad cycle of dependency, drug abuse, escape from reality. Yeah, it's nihilism basically. Yeah, it is a type of nihilism, of and it's a sort of soft nihilism, mm. right? Because it's not the it's not the sort of violent nihilism right. that you think of someone associated with 
um, someone like Nietzsche. It's a sort of soft nihilism. It's sort of inoffensive. Yes. It doesn't. It's not meant to bother people, but it means having no fixed compass beyond what's the next thing that's going to satiate my senses. And that's not a fulfilling life. Right. Maybe it's the Huxley kind of nihilism where you just yeah. take this, I forget what the drug is called in the book. Right. Um, and and you're just always in this state of mm-hmm. kind of blissful unawareness. Right. Or, or you enter the what, um, uh, what some philosophers call the, the pleasure machine. You just attach mm-hmm. yourself up to the machine and you just experience pleasure endlessly. Yes. And you think, but, but there's something problematic about that because it's entering into a world of unreality. What's happening to you is not real. Mm -hmm. So um, with the expansion of the welfare state, with all these different programs, with the ways in which they were exacerbated and and worsened by COVID and government responses to COVID, um, we have, as I mentioned, lots of young men in America who have checked out. They're not even sort of listed on the unemployment rolls anymore in some cases. They're sort of permanently checked out of society. Mm. Uh, And yet we have hundreds of thousands of jobs in the United States that can't be filled. And that's, isn't that weird? You have so many people that are just not working, but all these jobs that are empty. Hmm. Yes, yes. So then what do you say to the economic nationalists who can identify these problems? Like you're, you're saying that, yes, I see that these problems exist, but what is the classical liberal solution mm-hmm. to those kind of issues? Well, I think the response is to look and say, well, what are the real causes of the problems that we're talking about? And what I find interesting with many of the national conservatives and certainly with economic nationalists is that they tend to explain these things in terms of economic causes. This is their mm-hmm. their way of explaining what's happened with young men in America. They'll say, well, there's an absence of a certain type of job, and that means that certain people become, it becomes harder for them to work. Therefore, the state needs to step in to make sure that these types of industries don't disappear from these types of towns and regions in America. Now, my response is to say that, well, look, I'm sorry, but a tariff is not the way to fix serious social problems, whether it's family break- breakdown, marriage breakdown. Subsidies won't fix those sorts of things. And the causes for those things, I don't think, have too much to do with the economy. I think they have to do with things like the social movements of the 1960s. Mm-hmm. I think they have to do with things of a type of insipid nihilism that's made its way into parts of America. I think it has to do with um, uh, people freely giving up obligations that they've freely taken on to, and they've sort of said, well, I'll just do what I want. I don't have to worry about family or any of these sorts of things. And that's, these are not economic phenomena. These are social and cultural phenomena. And so it seems to me that some of these social problems won't be fixed by a subsidy. Yeah. They're, they're much harder to fix because they really involve a revitalization of things like civil society. Yes. These intermediate associations that exist between the individual and the state and in which people can find economic opportunity, but also different forms of social and cultural activity that enable us to become more of who we're meant to be, in which the state can't provide, but we also can't undertake purely by ourselves as well. So that, I think, is part of the way back, a revitalization of civil society. But that's not going to happen until we retract a lot of the state. 
from wide segments of society because the state tends to crowd out mm. intermediate associations and societies. And, and it's really, I think, America is quite remarkable that it still has a pretty vibrant and robust civil society given the extent to which government has intruded into society as a whole. I think that there are also, though, some people who would argue that it's not only an economic problem, but that it is indeed a cultural problem. Mm -hmm. You know, people talk about the culture wars. Right, right, right. And so they see things that they consider very radical, like, you know, on the progressive left, and they don't want to see these things happening in their schools uh, with mm -hmm. their children. Um, so... But their solution. And they want to strike back. That's right. Mm -hmm. So that's the solution, right? And maybe get some help from the government mm -hmm. to do so. That's that's exactly what you're seeing. Um, whether it's things like the ESG, for example, right? The ESG and the stakeholder capitalism thing. And mm -hmm. now I've written, uh, and I talk about it in the book. The, the problems with stakeholder capitalism, the problem with ESG, the problem with DEI, which is all about really turning business into a weird combination of semi-commercial enterprise and lefty NGO. That's really what yeah. these, these things are sort of pushing the commercial sector in the direction of. And so a lot of people on the right say, this is bad. I mean, it's, not as, it's, it's hardly the case that the left doesn't already control things like universities, most of the media, etc. Now they're taking over the business world. Well, the only way we can deal with this is to strike back through using the legal system or politics, to which my response is, well, first of all, um, then you're adopting the tactics and mindset of progressives, which means you've become a type of progressive. And that's inconsistent, I think, with um, the history of freedom in the United States. It's inconsistent with the American founding. And conservatives, I think, should care about those they sorts do of care things, about right? those things but right i think they do yeah. but they're making the mistake of thinking that if we if we use progressive means we can achieve our own ends and there's so many problems with that not least being that most of the institutions that they say they want to use to achieve these goals are already controlled by the left <laughs> right so if you want to use the administrative state right. you've got to understand that most of the people working for you in the Department of Justice or the Department of Labor are progressives. So you're probably going to spend most of your time engaged in an internal civil war to get some certain right. things done. Right. So, so I think that's, that's part of the problem. But also I think the notion that you're using the state to strike back against your enemies, well, then you start to move in the direction of, I think, a distinctly unhealthy form of politics, because politics shouldn't be about friends and enemies. And you hear this language on parts of the American right today. We reward our friends and we punish our enemies. And then they always say, but within the context of the rule of law. Well, the problem <laughs> with that is that once you have that mentality of we're rewarding friends and punishing enemies, you don't really care about the rule of law anymore because the rule of law is about justice. And justice is not about rewarding your friends and punishing your enemies. It's about being just. So this is a huge problem, I think, that the some sections of the American right have, that they're giving up on some, I think, very important truths of Western civilization in order to try and 
uh, fight a type of undeclared civil war. Right. Well, as you said, there's three generations of people who are really used to having government cozy up with them or be very involved with their mm -hmm. lives or turning to government for different things. So it's kind of like a conditioning that maybe they think, well, you know, we'll have to use the, that system <laughs> to right. meet our ends. Right. And I think that's, then you become like, then those people on the right who are articulating that way of thinking, who are talking this way, they're becoming a sort of mirror image of the people that they are, they want to engage in a type of more or less combat, political mm -hmm. combat with. Now, I get it. I don't like the left. I don't like what they do. I don't like their cultural agenda. I don't like the way they interpret American history. I don't like what they've done to the Constitution, to the, the, their contempt for the rule of law, their fostering of identity politics, their contempt for the American found. I don't like any of these things. I'm as against these things as, as uh, lots and lots of people, um, many of whom are my friends. But I don't think that the means that they're proposing to deal with these things will work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but secondly, I think they're inconsistent with the things that conservatives believe to be important. So um, they lack integrity, basically, moral integrity for these people to be acting them out because it's not truly in line with their values and what they believe in if they would wield state power to basically fight fire with fire. Yeah, that's what I think saying. that's, that's a, it's, it's a problem of consistency with what you think are your principles. Mm -hmm. Now, and that's what's interesting, because I think there are even some conservatives now who are saying, yes, you're right. These things are inconsistent with the principles of the American founding, which is why we need to move beyond it. Hmm. I mean, and that is really you want to move beyond, move beyond a profound political, constitutional, economic success story instead of arrangements. You really want to move beyond that. Towards what? And what they're essentially proposing is a type, I would argue, of mild authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mild authoritarianism. And if you read some of the some of the scholars who are working on this in this particular area, I don't think they're sort of super numerous, but they're influential. That's pretty much what they have in mind. Do you it? think they realize it? Oh, sure. I think in their heart, uh, they they sort of they sort of say it. They want to use the state aggressively. Um, they want to basically reinterpret the Constitution to produce a sort of imperial presidency and an administrative state that's, that's suited up and ready to go to advance conservative causes. Hmm. Uh, there are professors like this on the, on the right who are saying these sorts of things. Now, I don't think they're a majority. I think they're, they're still a, a relative minority. But nonetheless, um, people saying these things 20 years ago in the, on the right, I think, would have been more or less sort of laughed at or considered um, very, very marginal figures. But that's not quite the case today. The very fact that you and I are talking about them mm -hmm. tells you that they have exerted a certain degree of influence mm. which, on the right, which I think is very problematic. And Phil Magnus talks about how Karl Marx was pretty obscure as well. And <laughs> <laughs> right. right? And, yes, and we does. see where, where that has gone. Right. So.
Exactly. Um, and it's a name that we all know now. Right, of course. Yeah. Of so course. these are these are kind of dangerous ideas, especially if we are talking about them now. Um, and what do these people say about the Davos crowd and about oh. <laughs> globalism sure. and all of that? Well, I mean, I'm not a particular fan of the World Economic Forum or... Davos man, the phrase that was coined by Samuel Huntington, which I, I, I'm sure the people at the World Economic Forum, uh, they've never been able to shake this phrase off because it's it's so accurately describes their sort of view of the world and how they think things should be. And there are people on the American right. There are also people on the American left who don't like the World Economic Forum for different reasons. So the, the American left think the World Economic Forum is all about neoliberalism right mm -hmm. We're taking over the world people on the right they'll say yes it's all about neoliberalism and this is a problem but they'll also say but there's also lots of very nasty cultural agendas attached to what the world economic forum and people organizations like this globalist organizations are trying to do my quarrel with the world economic forum is is not so much about those things, because I don't think they're actually very big boosters of economic globalization now. If you just that, that lexicon is more or less faded from a lot of the documents and writings they put out. But what's core to the out to the outlook of outfits like the World Economic Forum is corporatism. Mm -hmm. Corporatism is the collusion. The system. It's not just collusion because it's, it's out in public. It's formally part of the way that things are done. Government cooperates with business. Business cooperates with NGOs. They all work together to try and produce stability and security. And the problem is that it leads to massive collusion, massive cronyism. It leads to significant diminuations, reductions of freedom, because corporatism is not really interested in freedom. It trades off liberty in favor of security, security, security. And it's not big on dissent. It doesn't like people who say, well, that's an interesting idea, but I'm not going to unionize my workforce because I think that would be not good for them, not good for the company, not good for me, etc. Or be involved in ESG. Right. I'm not going to be involved in ESG because I think it's incoherent. It's methodologically doesn't make any sense. Its goals are con constantly shifting. And let's be very clear. This is about turning businesses into more or less mildly left wing NGO. So I don't, I don't want anything to do with that. A corporatist says, no, you can't opt out mm -hmm. because the moment you opt out, stability and security are somehow put in the balance. And so you have examples of corporatism in, in really in living memory of some people would be Mussolini's Italy, classic corporatist regime, Franco's Spain between 1939 and the mid 1950s. Franklin Delano Roosevelt invoked corporatist thinkers, uh, praised Mussolini's economic ideas in, yes. in, at the early part of the New Deal. New Dealists looked to Mussolini's Italy and said, that's sort of a model that we'd like. And if you go and visit Washington, D.C., have a look at some of the semi-fascist architecture and statues that are around the place. Mm -hmm. They really do reflect this corporatist ethos. Today's European Union. The way in which it tries to build what's called worker determination arrangements, whereby work you put workers, i.e. trade union officials, on the boards of companies as a way of fostering dialogue and collaboration, but which actually fosters a lot of um, uh, lack of competition and uh, sclerosis at the level of management. 
It's everywhere. And this is sort of the world, the vision that imbues, certainly the, the president and founder of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab. He makes it, he says very clear, I remember post-war Germany as a place in which you had this type of collaboration going on. And that's what I sort of have in mind by stakeholder mm. capitalism. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, but there's some serious negatives associated with that, which makes it ironic that, that some on the American right are more or less proposing their own corporatist arrangements for the United States. And, you, and they're very critical of the World Economic Forum. And I yes. want to say you do realize that some of the economic policies you have in mind are more or less the same. It's your own version. Right. Right. Yes, I've noticed that as well. And that's kind of scary. It is because it, it, corporatism, I think, is... I like to put it this way. Not every corporatist is a fascist but every fascist is a corporatist. Ah, interesting. I'm glad that you made that distinction because I was wondering if they were interchangeable or not. Well, there are corporatists who certainly weren't fascists, who didn't embrace the sort of precise vision of the state that people like Mussolini did, who didn't, um, who weren't so focused upon imbuing a particular ideology. So, um, and they came from, there were socialists who were like this, there were, um, sort of guild socialist types who thought this way about the world. Um, but they weren't fascists. But every fascist, whether it's Franco Spain in that period I mentioned, Mussolini, Juan Perón's Argentina, um, parts of the National Socialist Experiment in Germany were clearly corporatists. So mm -hmm. fascists, almost all, in fact, all fascists basically adopt a corporatist type of economic set arrangements because corporatism is not about wealth. It's not about the creation of wealth. It's not even really about distribution of wealth. It's about the government controlling the economy in a way that um, preserves the sort of facade of private property, preserves the facade of independent businesses, but they're actually not. Right, right. Um, so... What can people do about this kind of thing? You know, the, the political left, they have problems with it. The political right, they have problems with it. Um, maybe some people on the political left don't, but <laughs> let's say more towards the center left, sure. as we mentioned earlier today. So, you know, what can an average person do about this? They're just seeing this unfold and, mm -hmm. and it worries them. Sure. So what can they do? Well, I'm tempted to say, read my book, but I won't. <laughs> what, I would say, yes, yes. what I would say is that um, it's very easy for us to just to sit back and say, here I am, an isolated individual. I really can't do anything. But I think the fact that you've actually thought that tells you that you recognize that there is a problem and you're just despairing about your capacity to do anything. So what I say to people is, first of all, inform yourself read more about these types of topics. And there's lots of material, not just produced by people like American Institute for Economic Research. There's lots of different materials out there that you can educate yourself in so that you can have a, a fuller understanding of where some of these ideas come from, what has given them traction, and how in the past we've dealt with some of these questions. So that's one thing, inform yourself. The second thing is, uh, if you're so inclined, and not everyone is, I think, called to this, not everyone should do this, is to become involved in politics or even just some type of community activity at your local level. A very good example of this is the way that 
school boards in the United States have been basically, in, 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 even in some very, quote-unquote, progressive, liberal parts of the country, have been basically taken back by parents angry about all the woke nonsense mm -hmm. and CRT and all, this, all, the, all these things associated with that that were being pushed through the schools, right? And so COVID sort of woke people up because suddenly they saw what their children were being exposed to yeah. and they thought, really? My child is being tell, told that being a man or a woman is just a matter of personal definition. Yeah, and it's There's got 72 genders. Right, or, or whatever right. it is. So, so all these sorts of things. And they suddenly realized, even many progressives realized, that's not what I think education should be about. And so you saw mm -hmm. in many parts of the United States, uh, people turning up the school board elections and throwing out the boards that were refusing to do anything about this. And then once they had control of these boards, getting rid of educators who were not engaged in the exercise of education, but were essentially seeing their job as ideological indoctrination. So that's a very good example. And I think in America, we actually have more potential for some of these things because we're still very much a bottom-up society. What, there was a, a professor who a long time who said to me, he said, if you want to understand the difference between America and Europe is that America was formed from the bottom-up. Right. So that's very much the story of the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a group of people imposing a set of ideas from the top down. It was very much a bottom up exercise. Whereas in Europe, for all sorts of reasons, and I think the two world wars had a lot to do with that, there's a tendency to think that everything has to be run from the top down, which makes economic liberty, limited government, constitutionalism very hard to preserve. It's one of the reasons I think Britain got out of the EU, because this was one of the big problems with the EU. Hmm. But in America, we're a bottom-up country, for the, still for the most part from a, for a bottom-up country, which means that when things get very difficult, Americans are, are willing to get engaged. And it doesn't have to be through a political party. There's all sorts of different ways that you can do it so that you don't have dragged Queen Hour at the local children's library, or that you you think that, well, I really have no say about the books that are being put in front of my children, or I can't say anything to my teacher about what's being taught in history or anything like that. Right. Americans, I think, are more temperamentally inclined to do that, which I think gives Americans a, a, a certain advantage in dealing with these sorts of problems. And I also think it's about reviving, as we've talked about before, reviving civil society. And the only way you revive civil society is by getting involved in things that perhaps you haven't got involved in before. And the moment you do, you create a new sphere, a widening sphere of freedom and independence that if enough people do it, these things can become very powerful, particularly in a country like America that has a long history of this. Yeah, they tend to trickle out. Right. Um, what about people who will say, well, it's not worth trying anyways because the woke ideology has, has taken over, they've gone so far, they've captured all of the uh, civic institutions as well as the governmental institutions, the NGOs, the courts, everything like that. Like, there's nothing for us to really do except for, again, come back with that strongman argument and say we've just got to batten them the other way. Um, do you think that those people can be... Um, can be shown another way, or do you think that they will remain rigid uh, in their mm. ideas? You know, that's a good point, because what I find when I, I, I go and talk to lots of different 
conservative groups about these types of issues, and I debate people who have the views that you just described, that we have to strike back, etc. And what I find is that um, a lot of people in America, they, they, they're tempted by the authoritarian option. Let's call it soft authoritarian option that is being articulated by some, not all, but some national conservative types. They're tempted by it. But they also know there's something wrong with this because they know they know it's inconsistent with America's founding principles and America's self-understanding at the founding as this is a commercial republic. Mm -hmm. We are not a top-down authoritarian corporatist regime. That's not what we're, nor are we a corrupt, sclerotic European social democracy. So Americans have this sense that there is something unique about America that conservatives say that they are in the business of conserving. Right. I mean, that's one of the things about American conservatism, particularly as it was formed during the fusionist movement uh, in the 1950s and 1960s. The American founding was very much part of the way that American conservatives thought of what they were in the business of conserving. They weren't in the business of conserving monarchy. They weren't in the business of establishing corporate estates. They were in the business of saying, how do we live out the principles of the founding? And that, I think, is the way forward. And when I've talked to different groups about this, I'm not necessarily persuading the people I'm debating, but I think I'm, we can have an effect upon the people who are watching these debates mm -hmm. so they can say, oh, mm -hmm. okay, that makes sense. Right. So that comes back to the moral argument mm -hmm. or the identity argument, mm -hmm. which is that, you know, these are, are parts of the American identity. Mm -hmm. Right. that are intrinsic. And you mentioned in your book how other countries, let's say European countries, they have common ethnicities mm -hmm. or languages mm -hmm. and things that they really um, build their identities around. Right. But Americans, because they were all immigrants in the beginning, mm -hmm. essentially they built their identity around the constitution, yes. which is really unique. Yes, and that's the, the, the person who sort of gave me this insight was um, an American historian named um, Professor Gordon Wood, who's not a conservative. He's sort of more of a moderate liberal historian, but he's an honest historian. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. He's, he's, I think he's an honest historian. He says that what makes America different in terms of its self-understanding and what gives legitimacy to things in America is that it's a nation in which ideas and principles and the documents... And, and personalities associated with the production of those documents. These are the things, he says, that give us who we are as Americans. So if you're in Britain or France you, or Germany or Spain or other countries, it's, it is more about sort of common myths, um, certain narratives. It's about ethnicity. It's about language. It's about some sort of very deeply rooted things. Um, that, but they're not about ideas per se. And I guess mm -hmm. in the case of Britain, you could say, well, you have constitutionalism, you have Magna Carta, mm -hmm. you have you have as inklings of this. But America is the country where, by far, it's mostly, if not almost exclusively, about ideas and principles and certain documents and certain personalities of the founding period. 
And that, I think, is really, if we're interested in preserving the American experiment and ordered liberty, if we're interested and concerned about reviving the idea of America as a commercial republic and being able to critique other sets of arrangements as not being consistent with the founding, then I think we have to go back to the founding. We have to find these ideas and make, it doesn't mean literally replicating from, from the present because we live in a different world, mm -hmm. but asking ourselves, how do these ideas and principles and documents play out in our current circumstances today? Because in the case of America, there's nowhere else to go. That's it. That's it. It is the beacon. It mm -hmm. is the last, uh, um, it, the last man standing if things really hit the fan, mm -hmm. in a sense. Um, so you mentioned ordered liberty. Mm -hmm. uh, this is an idea I'm very interested in. I know a little bit about. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what that is? Sure. Well, um, I wrote a little book in 2003 called On Ordered Liberty. And it's basically the idea, and it's very much part of the the way the founders, American founders saw the world. So that people are free. We are free beings. But we also have reason. And we also have will. In fact, we have, I would argue we have free will. Mm -hmm. And that our liberty is not about being a libertine. It's not about just doing whatever the heck we want for whatever reason. We don't care about what's good or evil, right or wrong anymore. Mm -hmm. Ordered liberty is the idea that we freely choose to live the good life, the good life that we can know through the exercise <clears throat> of our mind that tells us, for example, that knowledge is always preferable to ignorance, that work is always preferable to being lazy, that being reasonable is always better than being irrational, um, that beauty is always good and ugliness is always bad. Now you can argue about the precise content of right. all these different things, but that's that 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 idea that there are certain goods that our minds can recognize as self-evidently true and that we have the capacity, we alone of all the beings in the world have the capacity to make a choice for knowledge over ignorance, mm -hmm. for beauty over ugliness, mm -hmm. for rationality over irrationality, for friendship over enmity. Um, and that doesn't mean that the idea of ordered liberty is not that we're going to live in a perfect world. There is no perfect world in this world. We're all fallible or weak. We all make mistakes. We often misuse our reason to rationalize all sorts of dumb things. But nonetheless, we have this capacity to use our freedom in ways that promote who we are meant to be as human beings rather than using our liberty in ways that denigrate yes. who we are as, free, as, as human beings. And this is an argument that I, that I think is playing out in a lot of classical liberal circles right now because I do think there are some people in the sort of broad liberty movement who don't think about liberty in these terms. Yes. It's more about self-expression. Mm -hmm. It's more about... Um, pleasure. Hedonism. Yeah. It, it, in yeah, some ways. Yeah, it leads yeah, to. Yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah. And, and remember, there are, there, are, there are philosophers who were called the hedonists in the Greek world who were called the hedonists precisely because they said this is the purpose of human existence. So there's a whole philosophical tradition mm. behind this. Now, I happen to think it's one that is not particularly coherent 
It's one that I think that actually can lead to human self-degradation. But nonetheless, it's, it's also an argument that, that pervades all of human history, that this is an argument between ordered liberty on the one hand and a type of hedonistic conception of liberty on the other that's been battling its way out right. throughout history, going all the way back to the Greeks. Interesting. And uh, I'm on the ordered liberty side of that yeah. because I think that that's, that leads to a much richer vision of who human beings are meant to be. If, or if we're just pleasure machines, if that's ultimately all we are... Children wouldn't survive. No, we wouldn't have children. <laughs> and... And we wouldn't make sacrifices. Exactly. We wouldn't delay gratification. We wouldn't have long-term objectives. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't be able to say, well, there's a big difference between Michelangelo's David and um, a cow cut in half and put up in the Tate Museum in London and said, well, look, this is art. Right. right? So we wouldn't be able to make those sorts of distinctions. Right. Now, of course, the, the, the big question is, well, what's the role of government in all this? And mm. How much should government be involved? And my view is that the limited government uh, is, is something that goes along with ordered liberty because we do need rules. We do need certain rights to be protected and upheld if we're going to pursue the good. Uh, we do need things like rule of law that deliver justice, because mm -hmm. justice is very important. And I think ordered liberty points in all those directions. And it points in all those directions because it's about the same thing. It's ultimately about human flourishing in the deepest and widest sense of the word. So that, in a way, is is the moral code or the moral case, is ordered liberty, which is kind of, I think a natural inclination of most human beings. If you take away all of those external influences mm, and mm. if you don't grow up with drag queen story hour um, or with other things that can be extreme, you know, on the political right, mm -hmm, I right. think that it's the natural way. They're, they're kind of these old school traditional values that used to get passed on. Right. I, I do think that if you're looking for exemplars of what this looks like, I think Adam Smith mm -hmm. provides a very good model of this with his theory of moral sentiments and the, the wealth of nations taken together. It's very clear that he's not a hedonist. It's very clear that he thinks that there are certain objective goods. He do, does think we have free will, all these sorts of things. Another would be his contemporary, Edmund Burke, well, I think is, is, is maybe even more an exemplar of this idea of ordered liberty. In fact, I think he even uses the phrase at mm. some point. And he makes a very clear distinction between liberty that's shaped by reason, our knowledge of certain truths and our choices, and we compare that to um, the sort of disordered liberty that he saw breaking out across the channel in France at the time of the French Revolution, which, of course, was all about liberté, égalité, fraternité, right? right? But actually didn't deliver much in terms of equality. Uh, it didn't deliver much in terms of brotherhood because it involved, resulted in civil war. And it certainly didn't deliver equality because you had those who were in charge and those who were not. Okay, so do you think, Sam, that there is still a possibility that we head in that direction um, towards a market economy with some kind of, you can call it, let's say, ordered liberty, um, a certain set of values that are pretty broadly shared mm -hmm. among people? Do you think that we can 
head into that direction? Can we change course? Or is it even possible, that, sorry, is it even possible that we are perhaps already heading there because there's so much pushback now against all of the radical things that have come to surface in the last few years? Well, maybe I, I, I tend to be a hopeful person by nature, which is not the same thing as optimism. I'm, I'm a person of hope. Mm-hmm. And I think when you have hope, you sort of look into the future and you say, things don't have to be uh, the way that some people think that we're inevitably heading. And one of the things I, I think gives us reason for hope is that despite the rise of wokeness and all these things on the left, and despite the... Um, these sort of pseudo soft authoritarian versions of politics that have emerged on the right. These things force us to go back and ask ourselves, what is it that we actually believe in? What do we think is important? And what are the goals that we need to set for ourselves? And when you have these sorts of challenges emerging, it forces you to sort of remake the case for liberty in a way that's fitted up for the challenges of today. Not the first time this has happened, right? So we had to go through this exercise um, after the Second World War when we saw the spread of Keynesianism, planned economies, socialism, communism. It forced a lot of people to sort of say, well, what do I, is it that I actually believe? And I see similar things happening now. It's happening in the liberty movement. It's happening in the, the broad conservative movement. People are having to clarify what it is they actually believe and why they think that wokeness is wrong and why they think that this sort of soft authoritarianism that's lurking on parts of the right is wrong. Mm -hmm. Not just inefficient and unpleasant, but just wrong in itself. And as long as I think we have have that capacity for self-reflection and to refine and represent our arguments in ways that are fitted up for the challenges of the 2020s, rather than those of the 1980s or the 1940s or the 1920s. I mean, I I tend to be hopeful in that regard. So will it happen immediately? Probably not. But I do think that you see this revival of concern for freedom, this revival of concern about, do we really want to go down this path of state capitalism? This revival of concern about the importance of constitutionally limited government. That's pretty good, I think. To have that in in play is very good. You can also read Sam's book um, because you will learn how uh, these things actually are possible. And there's kind of a little bit of a roadmap in here. You really look at the past, you look at the present, you look at possibilities for the Mm -hmm. future and lay out some examples of of things that have happened and things that we can think about. Um, And actually, I wanted to read this on the back. I read this earlier. somebody wrote, could we get Samuel Gregg's book into the hands of every high school senior and graduating college student, please? Will someone intent on changing the direction of America's economy seize on this text and send it far and wide? Gregg has written a book that should be read from east to west, north to south. I think the only thing I'd say is that I'm 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 a person of hope and I hope that the book contributes to the discussion that we're having in America right now about some pretty serious choices that not just legislators and policymakers and uh, intellectuals, etc., have to make. It's really about ordinary American citizens making choices. And I'm not just talking about voting and things like that. That's part of it, but that's not the full story. It's really about 
remembering what America is meant to be, and then asking ourselves, how have we moved away from that? And how do we move back towards the American experiment and ordered liberty in a way that's appropriate and, and fitted up for 21st century America? Mm -hmm.